Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's smart? Tony Romo knowing every single play the Patriots were going to run down the stretch of the AFC title game. That was pretty smart. Here's what else is smart. Go into ZipRecruiter.com slash BS to hire the right people for your business. It's technology. identifies people with the right skills for your job. It actively invites them to apply. You get qualified candidates fast right now. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. We're also brought to you by the Ringer.com, the world's greatest website, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network, which features a bunch of podcasts that we've already put up this week, including Winging It, Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore. They talked to Dwayne Wade. He's only one of the 40 best basketball players of all time. You should probably listen to this. We also did a Rewatchables a brand new one about Fast and Furious Part 1, which was called The Fast and the Furious. Shea Serrano and I broke that one down. We have The Recapables, where you can find The True Detective, A Flat Circle, our True Detective after show, hosted by Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion. By the way, Game of Thrones is coming. It's happening. Binge mode. They're getting ready. They're finishing up Harry Potter right now in binge mode, but eventually... Game of Thrones. We will be preparing like it is the NBA playoffs. Coming up, we're going to talk to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. And then just to get a little sports in here, we're going to call my buddy Jacko, who really hates the Patriots. I don't fully understand it. I don't know what the Patriots did to him personally, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the uh, the Yankees-Red Sox offseason as well. Maybe just a little dash of Trump, a little sprinkling. We'll see how that part goes. But first, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we're taping this on a Friday. Jack Dorsey is here. What is, what is your official title? Creator of Twitter? How do you like to be? I'm a I'm a co-founder. Co-founder. Okay. Was there? There wasn't a singular creator of Twitter, though. It seemed like we, what was uh, it? It was in a car. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had a we had a bunch of people who were creative that all kind of helped to get it. But we all came in at very different ways. I came at it from um, for the majority of my career. I worked in this uh, field called dispatch, yeah, which was uh, around taxis and ambulances and black cars and whatnot. And that's where my fascination was, just kind of seeing what was happening around a particular city. Uh, Ev and Biz uh, came at it from Blogger, so this simple one-button publishing. And then Noah Glass uh, started this company called Odeo, which was a podcasting company. Yeah, it's kind of weird that didn't work, considering it podcasts is. became a thing. We gave up a little bit too early. We, yeah. you know, we <laughs> we sad. shifted a bunch of our strategy because um, Apple entered uh, into the space with a with a directory, and the big part of our offering was a directory, although. The really interesting part of audio was that it was one button podcasting. You could uh, you could record right from the web. You didn't need any special recording software, and upload it right there. But we um, we just after that moment we weren't as passionate about it, and that gave rise to working on things that we were passionate about. And Twitter came out came out of that. So the status thing really intrigued you status, as part of what this was. Just like, hey, I'm doing this. Yeah, well. Live Journal really intrigued me. Intrigued me back in the day. Uh, IRC, the Internet Relay Chat, 
intrigue me. And then uh, AOL Instant Messenger, the um, you know this this concept of being able to set. I'm in a meeting, or I'm on a call, or I'm listening to uh, Kendrick, or whatever it is. But in all those in all those services, you were bound to a to a desk and to yeah. a desktop computer. And the idea was, what if you could be anywhere? And I I worked on something with a I don't know if you remember the Rim. 850 was a predecessor to the BlackBerry. It was this like email pager. Yeah. So I built a little system that allowed me to take my RIM 850 and send an update to it, kind of like LiveJournal. But anyone could choose to um, to subscribe to that. But no one was really using the 850s back then. And yeah. it, it was just the wrong time. But in 2005, 2006, text messaging got really big in this country. And that's what unlocked everything. And we started Twitter as a as almost a text-only service. We had an archive ability on the web. We had an update uh, ability on the web. But the electricity of it was the fact that I could take out my phone anywhere I was. And, you know, you had the the keypads. Blackberries were just getting big. But um, I could take it out and I could just say what was happening, what I was doing, what I was thinking. And anytime I did that, you know, buzz, uh, Biz got a buzz in his pocket. And he could take it out and see what was happening with me, and it just made um, it made our world feel a lot smaller. So two thousand eight, because I remember I didn't join Twitter until the spring of two thousand nine. <clears throat> two thousand eight, I remember Facebook had done that status thing on the top, which I think was probably ripped off from you guys, but it was basically, you know, I would have my wife's friend would be, you know, like uh, Shannon is getting ready for my big meeting today, and that yeah. would be her status. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting, and then it got a little bit annoying. Yeah. And then I think with Twitter, it was a little bit of the same thing. I'm doing this. Yeah. And then eventually it seemed like people started to figure out, oh, wait, this is a way to comment on things, yeah, to, well, uh, to weigh in, to weigh in on a moment. And that's I had two friends, Dave Jacob and Kevin Wilds from ESPN, and both of them were like, you should be on Twitter. It's great. You could watch a basketball game and just tweet your thoughts. And I was yeah. like, oh, is that a good thing? And... Then I think that April, I just started messing around with it. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then people react. And it seemed like everybody kind of figured that out somewhere between 08 and summer of 2009, right? Yeah, we we started playing with it in 2006. And uh, that was uh, back in uh, back in March of 2006. And it was more focused on um, kind of what was happening around me and, uh, and, and my status. It was much more narcissistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It you know, people people would talk about like you know what was happening in front of them, not just you know, kind of a text selfie, but um, what was happening around them. And, and but in two thousand seven, we were at South by Southwest. Yeah, and people used it in a way that they would kind of share where what um, sessions they were visiting, and all the people that were speaking would say something like you know. If you want to know what sessions I find interesting or what I'm going to or what bars I'm going to tonight, follow me on Twitter. And that was also the first South by Southwest that New York Times and Wall Street Journal and major media had presence for the digital aspect of South by Southwest, yeah. not just the arts. And uh, we came into focus be, because of that. And after that, to me, this is one of the most beautiful things about Twitter is the people that used it showed us what they wanted it to be. So, you know, you started out with this broadcast of status and then people were trying to talk with one another. 
and they were using this funky little symbol, the at symbol, to address one another. And we noticed this happening in in um, not in mass, but consistently. Um, and they were just addressing each other by by name using this at symbol in front. We programmed it so that anytime we saw that in the text, it would actually link to their profile. Yeah, and we evolved that even more by creating a whole tab within the service that allowed us to see anytime their name was mentioned by anyone, even if they didn't follow them. And uh, and that opened the door to conversation. So that opened you know this experience where people could watch a basketball game together and not just not have to know who to follow to do it, but simply by mentioning someone else, you were in the conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and that gave this gave rise to this feeling of, you know, what you experience at a, at a basketball game or a football game where you have this, you know, kind of roar of the crowd where you can see what people are thinking and how people are feeling. And these are people you probably don't know. They're not people you have in your address book on like Facebook. Um, but you're sharing an interest in that moment of time and that's enough. And, uh, sometimes, you know, people follow each other based on that, but it's, it's not necessary. So you get all this unique insight and perspective almost immediately because the thing is open because it's public and because it's text, it's so fast to consume. And the, you know, the constraint helped us a lot too. Could you see, was there a point where people were just grabbing handles left and right? Oh yeah, because like your handles at Jack, yeah, and there's probably like a year long window there where it's like, oh, here's my name, I'll just grab the Twitter handle. Yeah, there's and a, that must have flipped, right? There's a I have I have a very common name. <laughs> it yeah. means fourteen different things in the dictionary, and uh, there's a real benefit to starting a service and getting the name first. But. I remember I couldn't get at Bill Simmons initially because I when yeah. I joined in like beginning of 2009, that was gone. I'm sure somebody had a parody account version of it. And yeah. I did something else, and then eventually Twitter, I think, you know, with people who are a little more visible, they tried to figure out ways to get them the usernames yeah. if it was possible. There was there was definitely a tidal wave. But we've, we've benefited a lot from, you know, some of the older models of the internet and pseudonymity. We, we didn't require real names on our service, and that was important and remains important because— you get you you know you get to express a little bit more of yourself, but you also get to build identity. It's not anonymity because we're not incentivizing, or we don't want to incentivize people coming into the service saying something and then bouncing out. We want them to build up an identity around whatever name they choose. But there was definitely a a tidal wave of people claiming names, and then us having to. Um, uh, you know, if, if someone did want to want the real name and represent that or something that represents their brand uh, to try to retrieve it. But um, generally it's, it's, uh, it's worked out and we, we saw, we saw a lot of creativity uh, around the names, but then the next big thing was, was the hashtag. Yeah. Well, you've also, you've, especially lately, you've gotten a ton of criticism for the fact that the anonymity and the pseudonyms is actually a really dangerous thing. Yeah. So I don't, it doesn't we, seem like there's ever been an effective path to solve that. Although now people have been really pushing you and everybody else that runs Twitter, like you have to solve this now. And I actually agree with that. I, identity is hard and, and I do agree with that as well. But if you look at services with a real name policy, um, they see the same sorts of uh, issues that we see on our service. So yeah. it's not as simple as requiring real names. Um what I think we need to do, and 
you know, what we're looking much deeper into is we, we had an open API, which, um, gave a window to a Explain lot of automation. Explain what that means, because open API is what? It's a, it's a programming interface. So yeah. a developer could, um, connect with Twitter and, uh, and basically act like any account, act like a, act like a human. And that's where some of the problems really began. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of benefits to that as well because you can have something like sports PSA or a lot of automation all automations that um, allow uh, you to see something in real time that you know humans just aren't capable of in terms of speed. But there's also a lot of confusion that ensues from it as well. So one of the things that we're focused on right now is how do we clearly identify the humans on yeah. the service, and even that is complicated because scripting gets more and more sophisticated. You know, we can, folks can script the mobile app, not just the web, not just the the programming interface that's meant for developers. So yeah. um, if we can utilize technologies like Face ID or Touch ID or some of the biometric things that we find on our devices today to verify that this is a real person, then we can start labeling that, give people more context for what they're interacting with and um, ideally, that adds some credibility to to the equation. So, it is something we need to fix. We haven't had strong technology solutions in the past, but um, that's definitely changing with you know the with these supercomputers we have in our pockets. So, it's funny. There's been backlash with Face ID now too, because like Facebook just did this ten year challenge thing, and Wired wrote a really good piece about. <clears throat> Wait a second, this is a really kind of ingenious way for them to actually get more facial recognition and help their software. And now they have this 10-year span of photos of people, and this is actually kind of nefarious. And that was the first time I was like, oh, man. Because I I was pro-face ID, and I still think for, especially like with going into baseball stadiums and basketball stadiums and stuff like that, I actually think it could be a really effective way to make stadiums safer and arenas safer, things like that. But then... Something about giving people my face makes me nervous with all the all the advancements we have, with the ability of people to put faces on other stuff. So I don't know. How do you feel yeah. about that stuff? Like just people using technology like that for nefarious ways. Well, I mean, first, if you consider what Facebook has access to, they already have all they have the variations of your face throughout 10 years. So they don't need to create a meme <laughs> challenge to do that. They True. can do that if they need to. If they, if they have uh, if they have some objective around that, but something like Face ID to me is a very thoughtful approach because Apple, when they created this and a bunch of the other standards that have ensued, um, a lot of the technology is local. Yeah, um, and you know you've seen this as a conversation in terms of well, what does that mean for law enforcement? Um, there are no back doors into it. And security is, you know, a constantly evolving thing, of course. But um, I think it's important that uh, people have control over their own security. So the local aspect of it is critical. Um, it's not networked. It's not accessible by Apple or, or third parties. Um, but I think the most important thing is like, how do we get behind this principle of earning trust? And um, but you understand why people's trust has eroded in oh, basically totally. all social platforms. Totally, totally, totally. And, you know, there's, I, I think it's easy to go to one method of earning trust, which is transparency. But there are so many methods of earning trust, um, explainability of what algorithms are doing. Um, we're offloading so many of our decisions to these algorithms. And 
a lot of them aren't engineered to explain why they're making the decision or what the yeah. criteria they are they're using to do so. Um, reliability is an element of trust. Um, straightforward communication is an element of trust. So as a company, we've set a principle for ourselves. And one of our most important principles is earning trust. And there's going to be multiple ways to do that. But every initiative that we do, whether it be within the product itself or how we how we talk, needs to carry with it an element of like, how are we earning trust with this move? And, you know, I... Do you feel like this is a crisis for you? Because I know it is for Facebook <clears throat> and for Twitter, I think in a lot of ways it is. But with Facebook, it seems m like much deeper and darker, but it's not great for Twitter either. No, it's not It's not great for all of us. I mean, it, and not, not just the technology industry, but society in general. I mean, I think a healthy skepticism, I think a healthy distrust uh, is necessary when in relation to government, in relation to companies like ours, in relation to technology that we use yeah. every single day, that we uh, we move all these decisions to, I think that skepticism is is healthy and it's critical. Um, so I wouldn't call it a a crisis. I do think it's existential. I, I do think if we don't pay attention to it, that we become less relevant, less viable to the world, and uh, we won't be used. So we have to put it first and foremost in everything that we do. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, we, we build these technologies and, you know, when you start creating these, these things, at least back in 2006, we weren't thinking a lot about, um, what we now see, uh, because we just didn't have to, we didn't see the scale that we, uh, that we now encounter and that we now I, face. I would guess you wouldn't think about it at all, right? You're just creating this thing for people to tell, it would, hey, I'm here, I'm doing this, I'm thinking this. And I don't think anybody could have seen within 10 years it's affecting elections and yeah. and doing all the things that social media has turned into. We, we definitely didn't predict or perceive or give much thought to it. And How do you reconcile that personally? Because, uh, I mean, you know, it certainly ballooned into something you couldn't have seen. But at the same time, you you and everybody else who runs these big platforms gets criticized all the time. I just read an interview yeah. today about, um, I think it was the Huffington Post, about they were just directly asking about all these different things about Alex Jones and all these things that um, Twitter had kind of opened the door for. And on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad they asked that. And on the other hand, I'm like, I don't. I don't really know what Twitter can do in some of these situations other than to basically completely change what it is. Yeah. Which leads to the question, is it time to really start thinking that way? It's definitely time to start thinking that way. But um, yeah, I don't think we're in a different world right now. I think we're in a different phase of what was already happening and everything is a lot more visible. Yeah. It's a lot more visible to the world, but it's also a lot more visible to us. And as you reach certain scale and you solve particular problems, new ones emerge. And Back in 2006, um, we, we, we weren't thinking about it because we, we didn't have to. And I'm trying to diagnose why we didn't feel like we had to. I, I, I think some of it's like you're always building these things with a desire for them becoming more and more successful, but knowing that the probability of such is very low. Yeah. And, um, the thing that we control right now is what we're building and if people value it and how do we put more checkpoints in place that as we do become more valuable to people that at the same time we're, we're earning more of that trust. And, um, how do we, 
how do we become a leader within that? How do we become a company that is one of the most trusted in the world? And we have a few we have a few questions around what might get us to better answers there, but nothing nothing really solid. We you know we know that we need to be a lot more open. We know we need to be a lot more transparent. Uh, we know we need to invest heavier in technology that is clear and straightforward and can um, express uh, for itself how it makes decisions and why it makes decisions. And those are all really tough problems. But, uh, you know, we, we feel the responsibility of, of how people use our tool and, you know, the off-platform ramifications of what, what that means. I think harassment is your biggest issue. And I think it's been your biggest issue all decade. And, you know, the first five years of the decade, it was basically like, you put the onus on the user to be like, I didn't like what that person said, I'm blocking them. You know, it was their decision. Yeah. It wasn't really Twitter's decision. <clears throat> um, you know, being a public figure during most of the Twitter time, like I read horrible things about myself on Twitter and sometimes with block and then I finally stopped reading my replies. I think what's happened the last three to four years with how women are treated, on Twitter and how minorities have been treated, it doesn't seem like it's getting better. And um, I don't really know what your alternatives are with this other than to really severely change the platform. And so you, I've, cause I've, I've read, I'm fascinated by all this. I've read some of the stuff you've talked about and you're acknowledging that there's a problem, but at some point something has to roll out, right? So when is it going to roll out? Like when are we actually going to fix this? Yeah. So first, I don't. I don't think there's going to be one single fix. It, yeah. It's just going to be a constant evolution. And we've um, we asked ourselves a question some time ago. Um, what is what is healthy conversation look like? What does it yeah, feel like? It's a and good question. You all. I mean, we we've all been in conversations that just feel toxic and that we want to walk away from. We've. Likewise, been in conversations that feel really empowering, that feel awesome, that feel like we learned something, we took something uh, away from it that benefits us. And we feel, if, if, if we have those feelings, if we have those experiences, we, in, in, in real life, in, in the physical, we can, we can probably measure them in the digital as well. Yeah. It's not going to be easy, but we, we definitely see people, quote unquote, walk away from conversations because there's an element of tox toxicity. And if we can do that, um, then we can better route the more meaningful conversations and to a higher level and, and maybe put some of the ones that might lean more toxic a little bit lower. And I, I think it, with all this, it's a question of friction. How much work does one have to do? I will say that we don't feel great about the state that we're in. Like you mentioned five years ago, the burden was on the victim. Today, it's still on the victim. Our entire harassment and abuse um, framework is dependent upon people reporting harassment and abuse. And it's completely unfair that the victim of the abuse and the harassment has to report it themselves because we're making them do work when they're already in a situation that feels dismissive, shuts them down, or um, may put them in some sort of uh, state where they don't feel safe. And they certainly don't feel safe to express themselves. So We've been looking at how we can use technology like machine learning and deep learning to um, automate some of that, to be more proactive about... So certain trigger words and trigger sentences. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or and if somebody is more prone to yeah, being kind of negative, maybe that person needs to go. Yeah, we started with looking at behavior. 
Yeah. Not the content, but the actual behavior. So it is probable that if one person is attacking you, they're probably also attacking others. Right. If they're slinging slurs at you, they're probably doing the same to others. And by looking at the network first and the network of behaviors that they're doing, we can be a lot more predictive about how these things should be um, amplified within your own space. Most of Twitter is by your discretion. You follow certain people because um, you find what they have to say valuable. It's your own little bubble. Yeah, and, and but that's you know the flip side of this that we should talk about. But there are parts of Twitter like your replies, like search, like trends, which are shared spaces that anyone can inject themselves in. Yeah, And we found over the past 10 years that people have found ways to game this. People have found ways to um, circumvent um, some of the, well, we didn't have a lot of algorithms back in the day, but circumvent a lot of the uh, the product so that they can rise above it all. And you can, and you know, they're really targeting this abuse in a, in a velocity that is um, hard to, hard to deal with. So we've been over the past year, we've been identifying these shared areas and, and then where people are gaming the system and not uh, allowing the amplification. You can still get to the content, but you have to do work to do so. And you know, there are people who want to see everything. And, uh, you know, see all the critique, you know, no, no matter what the flavor is and no matter the toxicity. Um, but the unfair thing is the stuff that you don't ask for that just comes flying at you um, that has an effect of um, shutting you down. Now, on the, on the flip side, I do think a big, um, a big challenge we have and something that we are definitely responsible for um, helping to create is this concept of an echo chamber and a filter bubble. Um, if you follow only the perspectives that you want to hear, it just constantly emboldens your own view. Like, you know, during, during Brexit, if you follow the leaders of vote leave, all you are hearing is reasons to leave. Yeah. However, if you did some work to go to the hashtag vote leave, 95% of the conversation, 95% of the tweets you would see there, are reasons to leave, but 5% are a different perspective. And, you know, maybe if you see that there's an opening that you, 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 you might just consider something a little bit different or, or weigh uh, your own thinking process against it, it may embolden you even more. And there's some research to suggest that, but we don't, in the product today, we don't allow anyone, we don't enable anyone to follow the topic or an interest of a conversation, we only allow for this account-driven methodology. And that that also builds these filter bubbles in the echo chambers. And you know, we need to be we need to be aware of that. So we've we focus a lot of our energy uh, in addition to the health of the conversation on making Twitter a lot more conversational, making it a lot more interest driven and yeah. topic driven instead of account driven. I, I don't see us as a as a social network that benefits from you know, the address book you have in your phone, I see us as uh, an interest network. You are interested in, you know, the NBA, you're interested in the, in the Warriors, and you may not know the people having the conversation around this topic, but they have something interesting to say that you find valuable. I would say you have nine to 12 months to figure it out before people really turn on it. You think that's fair? Well, we should certainly have that urgency. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know a specific timeline that, 
that we have to figure a bunch out. But it just we, seems like an issue that's becoming more and more written about, talked about, um, people being fired up about. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, the presidency hasn't helped either from that front. But yeah, um, and that's another issue that we should talk about that you have to deal with where you have somebody who's running the country who's using Twitter as basically a way to circumvent the press and to circumvent talking to reporters who might ask him questions that have balance. Yeah. And some people have said, you should kick him off. Don't let him use Twitter that way. That would also defeat the purpose of everything this platform has created. And I got to be honest, I, I see both sides. I don't really know how I feel about it. I don't think it's a great idea to kick Trump off Twitter, but I also see the case for it. Like, what do you, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. What is the case? What's the case for and against in your mind? Well, I, I believe it's, I believe it's really important that we hear directly from our global leaders. I believe it's really important. I do too, but I wish he, I wish he, I wish we could hear from him when he has reporters that could ask him stuff. You know, if he's just going to use Twitter to avoid that, that to me seems dangerous. You know, I, I've I've seen patterns that he he communicates with on Twitter in similar ways he do, he does with reporters. So I, I think there are some parallels there. You think it'd just be the same the same quotes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I there's there's a lot of things that have been said on Twitter that have also been said uh, to reporters, and vice versa. I, yeah. It, the the crazy thing is sometimes he you know he says something to reporters and people assume that he actually said it on Twitter, but it was actually on television or calling up a you know a television show and saying right. it there. So I, I think the communication pattern has been fairly consistent. But I think it's really critical that we hear from our leaders. We under you know we we get to see how they think, whether we we like it or not. I, I you know that generates a conversation about what we need to do and and how we need to act and. It influences how how we vote, or but you can see the other side, right? I, I can, you know, I, I I understand the the call, and I understand um, you know people wanting to, you know, shut that uh, you know shut the voice sh- shut that voice down, or what what he's saying in a particular moment down. But I, I just think it's so critical to understand how a person thinks and yeah. and what they think about and. Um, that conversation in between the tweets to me is is critical to moving the world uh, and to understanding like what we need to address, what we need to acknowledge, and and how to move forward in the first place. So, I would see it as a significant gap um, if we uh, if we just re- went around and and shut down accounts that we don't agree with. I would rather have a conversation about why we don't agree with it. So you that has been one of the recurring themes of these last couple of years about. Twitter and I think Facebook as well and Instagram have tried to position themselves as we're just the platform that people use. We we don't we're not here to judge. And then eventually over the last two years, people have said, actually, we need you to judge. We need your help. So now we're in this no man's land where, like, you know, you had the Alex Jones thing and some other <clears throat> some other incidents like that where you guys have actually had to intervene and change your policies or tweet them in some ways. And then the other side's like, well, this is now, we no longer have freedom of speech. Does How does this get resolved? Does this just go on forever? Is this one of those things where people are on this side, on the left, people are on this side, on the right, and we're never going to figure out the right way to do this? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I know. So it was a big question. <laughs> I, I'll say this. I, like, let, Let's talk about this from a use case perspective. How, yeah. do, how do people see Twitter? And I think people see Twitter as they would a public square. 
And I see, I, I believe that they have the same expectations that they would of a public square. I can mm-hmm. go into it and I can say whatever I want. And some people will come up and they'll listen to me because they find it valuable. But when it crosses a line of me yelling across the public square and harassing someone, there's usually a, a fairly typical reaction where concerned citizens within that public square will call that behavior out. Yeah. Or um, some form of protection or, or guardian or um, you know people who are, are paid to look out for the public square go over and have a word to, to change the behavior. So... I do think, you know, in in the minds of so many people, Twitter acts like a public square. And I do think we have a responsibility to watch when people are taking advantage of some of the mechanics of that public square to inject their message to people that weren't, didn't ask to receive it. Or just made something up. Or disrupting the piece. Yeah. Um, And making something up is a completely different thing. You know, we've been lying as humans forever. We're not going to solve the lying problem. We can help provide context around uh, what someone is saying. We can help provide context um, behind, uh, you know, helping to show what people's intent is. Like misinformation is not a solvable problem. When misinformation crosses a line into intent to mislead, mislead into a particular action, um, that is something that we can at least recognize the patterns of. And that's what you've tried to step in a little bit more with the we're, Alex Jones type situations. We're 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 trying more broadly. I mean, a, a good example of this is we, you know, back in 2016, we saw uh, some tweets that were intending to suppress votes, and the way they were intending to suppress votes is they tweet someone tweeted out um, an image of a number to text to register to vote. Yeah. And uh, people could text this number. And if you texted this number, you would actually weren't registered to vote. And something really interesting happened. First, the, the wisdom of the crowds really took over. So people started calling it out. And the number of impressions of people calling this thing out as fake, as something that's misleading to an action that wouldn't result in what you thought it was going to be, was 10x more than the impressions of that originating tweet. Yeah. But we can't rely upon the crowds to do this. We can't rely upon the wisdom of the crowds in the network. So we also need to be aware of the actions and uh, and what people are trying to do with the network so that we can diminish the amplification. So back to the um, to the question of uh, freedom of speech, I, I just think that's the wrong conversation. I, I think the conversation that we need to be having is around attention and around amplification. And that that to me is the responsibility that we have. Like people pay us with their attention um, to serve up things that they that will intrigue them, that will that are interesting, that um, you know push their thinking. Um, and we need to be hyper aware of the um, the ramifications of those recommendations and the ramifications of that amplification. And and the reason I don't think freedom of speech is the the right conversation is because technology is making it such that, you know, some years from now, all content will be available forever. It won't be centralized. Um, and it's, it's really a question of how we 
contribute to it and what we get out of it. And that I think is that I think is our, our role to make it easy to contribute, but also uh, to make it valuable um, to uh, to get something out of it. And I know it doesn't feel this way today, and I know it feels like this is a far off future and, and not something that may not even be possible for Twitter, but I would love for people to end a session with Twitter and to walk away from it feeling like they learned something new, whether it be around an interest, whether it be around another human somewhere around the world, but they, they, they actually walked away learning something. And I don't think most people experiencing Twitter have that feeling today. I think it's one of, um, being overwhelmed. I think, you know, it's outrage. It's, um, um, you know, how do I make sense of all this or, it's or very, anger it's or passionate? I, I think that's why people I, seem to enjoy Instagram so much these days. Cause it's just pictures and it's really, it's light. It's, it's light and it's easy. And it's like, here's my picture. And it's not showing it's, what we don't want to see. The comments are much tougher to kind of dig through. And yeah. it made me think, well, first of all, is that one of Twitter's biggest mistakes was not figuring out how to work with Instagram way back when and letting Facebook take it. I don't know how close was Twitter ever involved in potentially buying Instagram. It was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, like I was, a, so Kevin was our intern at Odeo. Yeah. And uh, I was I was one of the first 10, 10 people on Instagram. I was one of the first investors in it. Um, I love what they did, but it's very different. I You don't think it could emerge with Twitter in some cool way? Oh, I think it, I think it certainly could, but I don't know. I, I just think there's something so powerful about text because it gets at thinking directly. Yeah. You can't, you, you just can't get the vibe of how someone thinks necessarily through an image or in, in some cases, even, even a video and, and both like a video medium, it takes a long time to consume it. Yeah. And Text is really fast. It's to the point. It's um, it, it's just so close to our thinking process, and I think it's so beautiful. So I, I just I think they're very different, and I, I think they can coexist, but they serve different use cases. I, I I do think Twitter shows a lot of the world, and it's some of the world that we it's not comfortable. It's not something that we. We enjoy seeing, but it exists and we need to acknowledge it and we need to address it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's all these calls for, you know, when, you know, we, we, we need to make Twitter better, but like Twitter is a reflection of the world and what we need to make better. But maybe, maybe we, people don't want that reflection right now. Well, what we need to make better is some of the, you know, some of the, some of the parts that, um, people have taken advantage of it and people have taken advantage of spouting stuff that diminishes others in a way that isn't fair because they've they've gamed they've gamed the system. So what it, we should be reflective of the world, but we should not enable people to um uh, be so vocal if they haven't earned that audience. Why haven't you given your users more say over who comments on their on their tweets and also, who can even see them? I mean, you have the block feature, but like, uh, for instance, what if there was a box that people would be like, I, I can tweet, but there's no replies underneath this. Yeah, we're, we're considering this. So, we're, so we're, what, are the, what, are the, what are the pros and the cons <laughs> of that idea? Yeah, we're, we're considering a lot of these controls um, from specifically around the conversations um, from the original tweeter. Yeah. So if I tweet something, 
Um, how might I control the conversation? So the the pros obviously are um, you as a as someone who's starting the conversation or maybe hosting the conversation, you have more curation abilities. Um, the and and you know that can that can generate a, a conversation that can be more thoughtful and deeper and and going down a, a path that, that you want to take it or well especially if it was just the only people that could reply are people that you follow yeah yeah, yeah. so and now it's like a more more con- confined conversation that feels more like a like what we have on slack with the ringer where it's basically like we're on these little slack <laughs> channels and it's just a little more friendly and co- yeah. collegial yeah so the so the cons of that are are the bubble that you're creating yep. and the fact that you're you're limiting the variety of perspective and some of the power of Twitter, but also, you know, can be strewed as a negative is that really anyone around the world can come into a conversation with you and, and talk with Bill Simmons. It, it's extremely powerful. And for you, that person might have an insight that you just weren't thinking about because they're in the middle of a place that you've never visited or never thought about or have a context that you just don't have. So that's one thing we need to balance. But the other thing that we need to balance is Twitter has been so useful in um, speaking truth to power. Yeah. And as you have powerful figures who are able to curate a conversation more, shut down comments or shut down conversation, that becomes a, a real significant negative. And, you know, you can imagine global leaders that you don't agree with shutting down comments that they don't agree with that then you don't get to see. So the only way we can right. address you think this... You would, I, I can see that case. I still feel like... I would like to see it like from a trial period to see how it goes. Yeah, we need to feel it. So, so we, you know, we, we are working on this and, and, you know, we want to experience it ourselves and we want to give it out to our beta program and we want to be eyes wide open. And, and the only way we know how to do that is to add more transparency in the product. So, you know, you can imagine that like if you were to moderate a comment, for instance, or a reply, yeah, we should show that you did that. And uh, we don't necessarily detach it from the conversation. We just add a little bit more friction so that people want to see everything. People want to see the, the, the stuff that you moderated or that um, you pushed down below the fold. Um, they can see it and, yeah. and they can form their own opinions. And maybe they quote tweet that and set, they start their own conversation about the thing that you moderated around. So, but that's their audience. Let's take a break to talk about Hello Fresh. Make Conquer in the Kitchen in 2018 a reality with deliciously simple recipes from HelloFresh each week. HelloFresh delivers pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow six-step pictured recipe cards to your door in a special insulated box. All meals come together in 30 minutes max. Call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. That all sounds like in your wheelhouse, Kyle. Yes. Minimal cleanup? Let's do it. Less than two pots and pans? Push the button. Let's do it. You have three plans to choose from, including classic, veggie, and family, as well as the option to switch plans when your tastes change. There's something for everybody. We've tried this at the Simmons house. You know what's great? Not having to cook. Just having stuff ready to roll. Not hearing my wife complain about, oh my God, the kids want this, you want that. It's like, hey, we have the old hello fresh here. This is what you're getting today, and it's going to be really good. Their special offer for 2019 Get $80 off your first month by going to HelloFresh.com slash BS80. Enter promo code BS80 
Once again, HelloFresh.com slash BS80. Enter promo code BS80 to take advantage of HelloFresh's special offer for 2019. And again, you get $80 off your first month. So that's it. Back to the pod. What about editing tweets? Because that's the one I, I've always been mystified by. Uh, Twitter has operated like, everyone look, <laughs> you typed it, you're stuck with it for life. It's like I misspelled somebody. Now I have to delete the tweet and rewrite it because my Apple phone changed, yeah. the, changed it to a typo, basically. And now, now I look like an idiot. No, I get it. Uh, can I give you some context on why, why no edit first and then like how we're thinking sure. about it? So back to the start of this conversation, we started as text messaging. Yeah. And if you were one way to view Twitter is, um, what if you had the ability to text the world? Yeah. You'd have a text conversation with the world. You can't take back text. You, you can't, can't edit take, text. You can't take back text. And, and the beauty of conversation is that if you say something wrong, you correct it. Like conversation evolves. It's not a post. And that's the thing about, you know, Instagram or blogs. It's a post. You compose yourself. You, you, um, you put something up. It's a statement. Yeah. And conversation is different. The conversation that we're having, if I, if I say something that I don't, that, that I need to correct, I, I just say it and the conversation evolves. And, you know, it's only as good as the, you know, this last part of the conversation, how it, yeah. how it, twists and turns. So we're mindful, we're mindful of that, but that's a historical context of, of not enabling edit because when you tweet something, we fan it out to all your followers and to search and the replies and it's already been seen within five minutes. People so like the ship sailed. The horse is out of the barn. It's been pushed. But then we look into the use case and there's, you know, there's, there's a few things that people want to do with edit. One is is the example that you brought up is I just made a mistake. Like, you know, I I misspelled something. I don't want to be known for this misspelling. So that's, that's me like once a week. A five minute window to correct might be an interesting feature. But you have to keep in mind that Oh, I like that. Like a one minute 60 second shot clock. And that might be too long, right? <laughs> that might be too long. So you you get some time to reflect on what you just said and and maybe correct it. But you have to keep in mind that it pushes back the delivery. It pushes back the the fan out, so it, it pushes back the real time. So, nature. like if I'm commenting during a basketball game, and now it's a thirty second window delay. Now it might be delayed thirty seconds, and and so we just have to be mindful of like some of the power of Twitter and the electricity of it is this real time feeling and the vibe of it. So we have to be mindful of that. Another thing that people have asked us for is, man, I you know I I tweeted out URL, it's a wrong URL, or the URL changed. You know, this link to a website it changed, so I need to correct that. Now that one might be longer than five minutes. People want to go back to an original tweet. Or they brought the URL down and reposted it. And yeah. now that tweet has, you know, that's happened to me a lot of times. So the danger with that is you sent that out 30 minutes ago or maybe a day ago or a week ago and it's up, it's updated and you really need to correct that. But all these people might've retweeted you or replied to it or quote tweeted it. And Meanwhile, you're, you know, you want to do something a little bit more devious and you change the URL to something completely different. So you were, you started oh, yeah. this tweet saying one thing. That makes sense. People agreed more or less with a retweet. And then, it changed, you and then you the completely changed the message. Yeah. So that requires a change log. Yeah. So that requires showing that, you know, you edit this thing and you completely change the message. And so there's a bunch of complications there. And then there's another use case where, I, you know, I said something stupid 10 years ago. I, I need to clarify what I said. 
And I, I think the world right now, I mean, we, we see so much of this right now where people are being, uh, you know, tweets from 10 years ago or 13 years ago are being dragged up and pointed at. And this yeah. is a reason you should be canceled completely when it was a different context. And if we don't give you the ability to clarify what you said, or we don't give each other the ability to clarify and the ability to like learn and evolve as conversation does, then, you know, what are we doing here? People, we're, we're, we're creating a culture where people can't make mistakes and feel bad for making failures instead of like what we should be doing, which is learning from them, but the funniest admitting thing is, it and, tw- and moving on. But Twitter is also, I mean, you know the irony of that, right? Twitter is also the number one reason outrage culture exists. <laughs> so, I mean, it literally is by far the LeBron James of that conversation. It, uh, I, it allows people to just basically be like, this happened, let's get them. Well, I, and then and then we're off, and that's basically been Twitter since I would say around nineteen. I would say two thousand twelve, maybe took a couple years. Yeah, but eventually people kind of realized how to use it in group, and in some cases it's good, and in other cases it's not. It's dangerous. Well, going 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 back to your you know your question on like is this fixable, and like have to you do you have to look at the foundational aspects of it? Yes, we we have to look at what the service incentivizes. Yeah, and I would agree that the the service and the service doesn't incentivize learning right now. The service does, in degrees, incentivize echo chambers. It does, in degrees, uh, incentivize outrage and, and self promotion and self promotion and and I did this. I have this book coming out. Or, Here's my new know, column. Here's my new podcast. Or look at this idiot Twitter. Do your thing. Yeah, and these flash mobs of people em. going and attacking. That that's not something we feel great about, but. That is in the mechanics of what we built and for, to, to truly fix this. And it's not going to be nine months. It's not going to be a year. Like this stuff takes time because these are the underlying dynamics of the, of the service. We have to look at what we're incentivizing. And it's not that we should be incentivizing anything, but we are right now. People open up the app and we are telling them something to do. Whether yep. it be look at that heart and look at how many people have uh, liked this tweet or look at how many people have retweeted this or look at how many people replied right? or look at how many people follow this account. And all those signals are incentivizing a desire in me to contribute in that particular way. And, you know, if there, if there were one thing that I would want to incentivize its contribution to, you know, a, a global conversation because I know, but you realize how holistic that sounds though, right? You're probably not getting that. It is, I know, I know it, it sounds idealistic. great, we're but not gonna, we're not you're gonna, just not getting it. There's, we're not going to get it in the this next. This is the internet. The internet is a dark place. You're never going to, you're never going to find Nirvana with Twitter. The, it's always going to be polarizing. <laughs> there will be polarizing aspects of it, but I, if we don't help get this, like, I, I just believe it's dire for the world. There, there are, significant conversations we should be having as a world, not as a nation, as a world, like climate change, like economic disparity, like the displacement of work from AI that- Well, you've shown democracies in foreign countries. Like there's been a lot of good things that Twitter's done as well. But no one nation state can fix these problems. This has to be done with a global conversation. So if we can't do our part to at least incentivize more of of the conversation at a global level, then- you know, we've, we've failed. And I've been I, dying to ask you this for, I, I was like, someday I'm going to meet him. I'm going to ask him this. Why isn't Twitter subscription? 
why haven't you thought of some sort of model? First of all, you'd make money from it, but couldn't you, isn't there some model where it could be like you get four free tweets a day and then for a dollar a month, you get 10. And then if you want to tweet 15 times a day, that's $4 a day. And then if, like, isn't there some way to do this where you're basically de-incentivizing people who can just go on and, and go nuts and there's actually some coherence to it? Or am I overthinking it? Because the subscription no, model is now becoming a thing all over the place with media. Why wouldn't that happen with Twitter? There is. The simple answer is accessibility. Not not everyone can afford to pay a service like Twitter. So, But if you're giving them five free tweets a day or four free tweets a day, wouldn't that help? It it, it may. I, we we should be experimenting with our models. We, we should definitely be experiencing about experimenting with how we run our business and what we make money from and you know, the, the thing that's important to me is that we're aligning the incentives with who we serve. And I don't think they're in perfect alignment today. Um, we, um, you know, we, we benefit from people's attention. And I'm hyper aware of what that means and what that means for our business model and, and how that could evolve. But we should be looking at, at things like subscription, and we are. What does Twitter Platinum look like? <laughs> how expensive is it? And what do I get? I don't know. The ability, I can or, follow anyone and nobody can see who I follow. Premium or I prime <laughs> or I don't know. Is it is it is it something on the consumption side? Is it something on the reach side? Is it um you know, is it is it speed, um, access to information? All these things are consideration. Is it like one of the one of the interesting things that you know, I, I have issues with on the services. I read a lot of news articles through Twitter because people tweet about them and yeah. every single every single publisher has a different paywall and they all have different gates for those paywalls. And one might have three free articles and then another one might have five. And as someone who who uses the service, I I just want one thing. Like, you know, just make it easy so I don't have to go through all these paywalls. So paywall bundle. These are all solvable problems and interesting, interesting products, but um, we will prioritize them. But right now, the prioritization is on health. Twitter bronze, Twitter gold, <laughs> Twitter platinum. The branding will be interesting. It should be bird related, and maybe not metals. I want to do. Uh, <laughs> I want to do a speed round with you. Uh, just some questions. Uh, Two thousand eight, as you were figuring out what Twitter was. How would you describe that stage of your life? Because you got bounced that year and there was a book written by Nick Bilton about the whole thing. I, I never know because I've been reported on. I never, there's always like two sides to every story. But the perception at the time was like, you created this thing, but you also want to do all these other things. And your focus wasn't 100% on it. Is that, is that a fair narrative in retrospect? Well, the one word for it was, it was an awakening for yeah. me. I, uh, you know, I, I I attribute a lot of who I am today to some of the events during that time. I, I didn't want to do a lot of other things. I, I I wanted to make I wanted to experiment a lot with. It was like you're doing Twitter. hot yoga. And you're you have yeah. all these other interests, and people are like, "Why isn't this guy working 19 hours a day?" Seemed to be the criticism. Yeah, look, but you know, if I can't be healthy, I, I'm not going to be able to show up for work. If what would I, you do differently about 2008? Um. I don't know. I, I, there, there were so many circumstances that I didn't control that ended yeah. in the outcome that that happened. So, 
I don't know if I, I, I guess I would communicate better as to why I thought doing hot yoga, Bikram <laughs> yoga was important to <laughs> my health. Take a fashion course. <laughs> a, yeah. Like it, all these things inspire me and yeah. they make me more creative and I don't want to be one dimensional. I want to, I want to, you know, I, I believe my creativity is, is only a function of what I see. And if I'm only seeing one thing, I'm not going to be reflective of, of everything in the world and we're going to build something for just one class of people or one dimension of people. And that's not interesting to me. What is it like after you create something to then basically get pushed aside for a couple of years? It's like you've, <clears throat> you've fathered this baby and now you're being told to just leave. It's, uh, it was really hard. I, I, I cried that day. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an introvert, meaning that it not like when, a, when a lot of people think about introverts, they think shy, but, an introvert is someone who gets their energy from solitude and being alone. And I just kind of, I, I went away to a cave <laughs> yeah. and it was, it was pretty dark, but I, I love the service so much and I want the best for it. And if the organization didn't feel I was it, then eventually I got peace. I got, I got to some amount of peace with that. And the thing that helped me realize that was starting something else, starting Square, reconnecting, going back to St. Louis, my hometown, reconnecting with one of my first bosses when I was 15 years old, deciding that we wanted to work together again, not knowing what we wanted to do, but that we just wanted to work together. And, and Square coming out of that was, um, was instrumental. And I, I just learned so much from that, from that moment. But you know, I guess if there was one thing I'd do differently, it's just communicate the why, why, why all these things are important to me and, and why they ultimately will make Twitter better. Hmm. But it also needs, it requires some time. We, these things take time and they require patience. What's your life look like if you actually joined <laughs> Facebook? Because that was a big dalliance right after you left Zuckerberg. You'd been talking to him anyway. I did, didn't seem like they, from everything I read, didn't seem like they had like the perfect job for you. But I mean, there's a world in which you go there, right? There was never a world I, that I would go there. Really? They, they, they talked to me. They, they, they wanted, they wanted me to join. I met with, uh, with, uh, only two people there, Mark and, uh, Mark and Chris, and we had conversations, but it's not something that I, I want to do. Just I wanted to appeal to you. I want to start something. I, I've, yeah. my life has, with the exception of Odeo and this company called Riverbed, I never had a, a, a real job. I, I consulted, I, I, I created my own things. I, I lived, you know, on consulting paycheck to consulting paycheck. I had no money whatsoever. When I started yeah. Square, I was in significant credit card debt to the to the tune of four hundred thousand dollars to Jesus. even before like Kyle even before starting the company. Sorry, Kyle. <laughs> but like, you know, I I, I didn't I d I didn't want to work at a traditional company. I tried it for three months at Riverbed. It wasn't for me. I I went to Odeo because I respected Ev. I respected like his design principles, what he was saying in the world. When Biz joined, I thought it was amazing and fun, and that evolved into something different. So I, 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 I just I love creating stuff from scratch. Yeah, and I love that feeling. I love the electricity, and I also like that feeling. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. and and it, it's just um, I, I, I can't imagine myself maybe. You know, building a company and maintaining a company outside of the startup phase has has also been a lesson. Square taught me so much in, in that. 
Um, but uh, well, it's almost just like just coming into someone else's company and yeah. having an impact feels very foreign to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, somebody on on the ringer asked me to ask you this. I thought it was a really interesting question. How much interaction do you have with Zuckerberg and all these other people who are running social media platforms that are basically shaping where the world's going? Should you have some sort of council where you meet like every six weeks and talk about the different challenges you have and try to work together better? Does that happen or is that happening secretly? <clears throat> What's the deal with that? It, it, not enough. I mean, we don't have enough conversations as as companies. Um you know, we've we've definitely met individually over over the years. Um, sometimes to talk about what we're doing with with our companies and our services and the problems that we're facing, but um, a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurship and technology and what we're seeing, and sometimes just getting to know each other and just you know hearing what uh, what it was like for someone else starting something. But uh, our our teams meet on a regular basis. So, you know, we do have folks from Twitter meeting with Facebook and Google. Yeah, but I'm and, talking about like the the people. <laughs> well, they are the people. They're doing they're I'm doing saying the like in the, the Godfather, like the heads of the five families getting together <laughs> to talk about talk about life. Yeah, we 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 don't we don't do it enough and we probably don't do it enough publicly. Um there's It seems a, like there should be some council of basically all the people who have shaped where the internet's gone these last 15 years and you guys should get together. I worry Under about Under closed a, door, you worry about stuff leaking out? No, I worry about a council. Like as, as someone who- you, This is important though. No, you, I, I, it, it is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but like as, as someone who, you know, grew up on the internet and, and loves everything that it, it purports to do in terms of decentralizing and, and freeing so much that has been captured within central organizations in the past- Creating another centralized organization to determine like where all these things go. I think, so maybe, but maybe it's not an organization. Maybe it's just dinner every three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally down for that. Um, I think but, you should start this. But I, w- I would want to like we'd have to have really clear goals about what we're trying to get out of it, and I would want it to be public and transparent because I just wouldn't trust it otherwise. As someone who uses the internet, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't trust like you know, the, the, the quote unquote five major companies getting together to determine like what I use and what I don't use and how to think about it. Not unless it's public and it's open and I can see the, the conversations and I can see where, um, what, what the outcomes are and, and I can voice my concern with it too. You guys are the new mafia. You're running things. No, really? no, no. Like <laughs> that's the beauty of the internet is like anything could happen. And that one thing could completely changed the course of the internet. And that to me is beautiful. And it's not a leader like me or a company like ours that does that. We're going to help in whatever way we can. Yeah. But the beauty of the internet is anyone anywhere can start something that significantly impacts society in a, in a positive way. Was there a specific moment when you stopped thinking about Twitter as just this fun, cool social internet toy basically and realized that this was actually going to have a massive impact uh the plane landing in the hudson there's so many but the plane landing in the when, hudson, what year was that the the sullenberger one yeah yeah and the reason why is because you have this gentleman who has less than 100 followers yeah and he was in the right place at the right time he captured a photo of this um 
So this plane landing in the Hudson and he tweeted it out. And again, a hundred followers, but it was an international conversation and seen around that photo was seen around the world within 10 minutes. And that to me is like, wow, that, that is powerful. That, that is something that, that just feels amazing. The other one was a student journalist in, in Egypt, um, by the name of James. And, uh, you know, he was, a uh, he was on the ground. He's also an activist. He was on the ground, um, covering, uh, some protest. And he saw these, uh, he saw these folks come up to him, uh, from the military and he knew he was about to be arrested. Yeah. And he quickly took out his phone and he tweeted just one word, which was arrested. And then all these people, um, started, you know, doing whatever they could to, uh, get him out from, uh, from this prison. And the next day, 24 hours later, he tweeted one more word, which was free. And that to me just showed the power of, of language and the power of text and how even just one word can say everything. Do you know what it was for sports? Because I have the answer for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For sports? um, It's a very clear answer. I don't know. So the The listeners are listening right now, racking their brain, wondering what it is, but it's unequivocal. There's no question this was the answer. I don't know the specific, but in terms of a league, it's probably having to do with the NBA. Nope. Uh, Well, for me, it was. um, Tiger Woods is... uh, Escalade crash Mm. and that whole thing the next day as that unfolded, that was the first time I remember following a story on Twitter Mm. because being like, I want to know what's happening. I'm going on Twitter every once in a while to see if there's any news about this. Mm. So maybe there's something for that, but I felt like that was the first one where Twitter combined with something to make it seem like, oh, this is a thing. Oh wait, new information. Oh, oh wait, there's going to be a press conference and it just... From that moment on, it feel you know, before then we had like ESPN's bottom line, that little ticker on the bottom. Yeah. Or we had ESPN.com's main page. It but we didn't have that like, you know, thing. Um, how much has Trump helped Twitter survive as a business? We because are not- three years ago it was a little rocky. And I mean, look, it's it's undeniable. His him as a Twitter personality has been um it's given Twitter a bigger everything. Whether that's good or bad is another conversation, but it has certainly made it bigger. You know, we, we're we not dependent upon any one account yeah. or any particular market. We, we have seen over close to 13 years now that this thing is evergreen because I think it's so essential. I think we reach something that is essential and foundational. What Trump did on the service, though, is increase the percentage of news and politics conversation. We saw a market increase. Uh, For better and worse. During 2015, 2016. Um, I think he started on the service in 2012, maybe even earlier, maybe 2009. His tweets have been consistent all the way through. There has been literally no change. If you look all the way back through all of his tweets, they've been consistent. He definitely has a style. <clears throat> he, has a, he has a style. And <laughs> it's, um, but a lot of Twitter is really dependent upon, your experience of Twitter is really dependent upon who you follow. And if you follow news and politics Twitter, it can be a pretty alarming and sometimes toxic place. If you only follow NBA Twitter, it's all good. If you follow K-pop Twitter, yeah. it's just fandom all day. And K-pop Twitter is one of the biggest conversations on Twitter. 
gaming, like esports e- and gaming, is you know one of the the second largest conversations on Twitter. So, yeah. but at the same time, you you see um, you see Trump, and you know a lot of a lot of people don't like how he's using the platform and uh, and and what he's saying on it. But then you also see in the same moment of time the Parkland students using it, and you see what AOC is doing with it, and I. You know, it's it's a function of of how real time, how public the medium is, and if you want to make it positive, you can make it positive, and people can make it positive, and 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 that is the key. Like there is a lot of things that we disagree with in this world, and I just think it's so important to acknowledge and address them. And there are people who are flipping that on its head and and taking it into a positive light and directly engaging in the in you know in the negative and influencing it and 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 you know making people see something a little bit different it's unclear if you have any distinct political or moral positions other than a lot of the stuff we talked about today is that by design are you intentionally withholding stuff because you feel like it's better for the business no i've always been that way i've always tried to pay attention to the issues and not to a particular party i grew up my you know my parents are from st louis my dad was republican my mom was was Democrat, and uh, we had a lot of arguments around the table. And I, I'm just so grateful for the fact that number one, I got to see you know some ends of the spectrum, but also I felt safe uh, and also respected in voicing my own opinion, and that I wouldn't get you know um, in trouble for it. I, I could be free in uh, how I thought about it, and I could evolve my thinking. And um, you know, St. Louis is a very a uh, tough place to grow up. It's a uh, it's a city that's seen a lot of a lot of issues and a lot of circumstances. Yeah. Very, very segregated, uh, um, and uh, you know my parents they always stuck by the city. They you know they they always stayed right in the middle um, where the where people come together. And um, I I'm I'm really grateful that for that. And it's shaped you know who I am and how I think about things. So I I haven't found. I haven't felt any particular allegiance to any any party, but I have felt allegiance to. What about like something like gun control? Does it matter what you think about gun control? Do you feel like you have to stay away from that because then that would compromise what Twitter is? No, I, I think I need to be clear that this is my personal view, and this is not the view of everyone in our company, and certainly not the people using our service. Um, right, and we also need to be clear that we're not unfairly biasing how the service works towards my own views. Right. Um, and if we can't, then people should not trust us. Yeah. If, if, you know, we, people should trust the fact that we're showing, you know, the mechanics behind things. And if, uh, if we can't do that, I, I completely understand people not trusting us. What's the biggest mistake you made with uh, building Twitter this decade? This decade? Yeah. Um, what would be your one mug? And if you could just go back in time and stop it. <clears throat> Uh, not, not focusing on our, on our superpower. You know, I, like, I, I think we, we just got so reactive to what everyone else is doing and we didn't go deeper into what makes Twitter, Twitter. And that is conversation. Yeah. Like it, it, public conversation is what we do and it's what we're good at. And it's what people I think come to us for. It's, so what year are we talking about here? We you feel like you lost your eye on the prize. Hmm. It's not one year. No, <laughs> it's multiple, it's multiple years. Okay. Within the past two years, we've we've regained that focus, and uh, you know, I I think you know we're 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 starting to see some of the results of that. Why does it take so long for 
um, harassers, perpetrators to be apprehended or blocked? What is it about Twitter's Twitter as an entity that allows people <clears> to <throat> be terrible and then some time will pass before something happens? Uh, one is because um, we we work on reporting. Yeah. So our, our whole system is reactive to someone reporting. And uh, in the in the not too distant past, it was only the victim could report. Now we enable bystanders to report as well. When and did if, that change? If it's not reported, we don't see it within the within this year. Oh, good. Um, so if we if it's not reported, we don't see it. Um, and then we get a queue of these reports, and we prioritize the queue um, based on severity. Um, so you know, if someone's physical safety comes first and foremost, right. and those get prioritized before everything else. And then we have to pay attention to context and context matters. You know, an example of this, we have a lot of gamers on Twitter yeah, and we have people who are saying, you know, at Bill, I'm going to kill you tonight. And what they mean is within the game that they're playing together. Like in Madden. Yeah. Yeah. So that context is important. We have people using uh, slurs in ways that aren't meant as slurs to the receiver, the context of the receiver. Yeah. So, and humans have to review all this. So, how many humans do you have reviewing this? Well, or is we, that not public? It's not public because we we want the agility to change it. Yeah, and okay. the the reason we want the agility to change is because something might flare up where we just need to direct people to this particular thing, and then that's not a fixed number. And number two is we want to move this whole thing to technology. We we want we we want to recognize the role of amplification and attention and and the behaviors on the system. And we want to um, be proactive about it. The, the, having the burden of reporting on the victim is not acceptable at all. Yeah, And uh, it's just taken some time to even utilize machine learning in the right way at our, at our company. We were very, very mechanical in the past. Um, but, but all that is, is changing and we're, we're working as quickly as we can. But that's, that's why it takes time is number one. Um, People don't report it or they report it later. And then number two, we have to go through a review process that that takes into consideration the context and the circumstances. If uh, if Zuckerberg called you right now and said, give me one tip, give me one thing that would help me right now, our company's in crisis, what would be the one thing you told him? Um, it's a good question because you can't really get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't want to get out of it. Um I I I think the most important thing right now is that we as companies and as an industry earn trust and I think the most well, imp- their trust is gone. Nobody trusts them. So what do you do? Well, now? but the most pack- impactful way to do that is just to explain why. Like why we're doing the things that we're doing and um and to admit in the like where you know where in the past that that trust was was broken. Um, so, being super open, being super vulnerable, um, being explicit about why we're doing the things that we're doing and the trade offs, but not overwhelming people with information, um, but prioritizing it. This is the most critical thing, and not everyone's going to agree with it, but this is what we're focused on and why. And um, it all comes down to why. It all comes down to like explaining the why behind our actions. Do you think it's recoverable for them? I I think everything is fixable, you know. I I, I do, but I I do think it requires a different mindset. Yeah, and, um, I did too. Um, 
Who are your five favorite follows? The people that I follow? Yeah. Just five or like four or five people that you just like, they get it. This is this is what I want from Twitter right here. Uh, my mom. And the reason why she gets it is every morning she says good morning. Every evening she says good night, usually with a sunset picture or sunrise. Um, but the, the reason why I think she really gets it is because she's she's built up this uh, this group of women all around the world that just say hello to each other and they haven't met in person and they have coffee together. And, uh, and I think that's just so awesome. I, I think it makes the world feel smaller. Elon Musk, I think, um, Elon Musk really gets it. I think he really gets it because I, th- you know, it's just, it is his thinking process. And I, I think we need to see more leaders, how they think. And again, we're not always going to agree with it. We're not always going to agree with the actions, but, um, I, I think it's critical um, that we see that vulnerability. Yeah. I don't do enough of this. I don't, I don't use Twitter in a way that um, I feel like I should. And well, you said you're an introvert, though. I'm an introvert, but I'm better on text. But at the same time, I, I always feel the, the weight of my role and, you know, this, um, you know, what people, how people might pick apart a particular message and, and remove the context and whatnot. So I'm working on that, but um, he uses it in a very free way. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that. Draymond Green's mother is one of my favorites. Really? I don't know that. I don't follow her. She's amazing. Babers Green. So you really like parent Twitter because my, my dad's Twitter is my favorite Twitter. Yeah. It's just like him flying off the handle about Boston sports, but like in a very nice way. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, I just like it. It's like his text. He's well, somehow mastered it. She's amazing because she's found all the other NBA moms and she trash talks. With the moms? With the moms. I have no idea. Even, even with Draymond. Like when he's playing, her insight into how he's playing is amazing. So that that's one of those moments when I feel Twitter is just like a fantastic compliment to watching the game because I see what's on the screen, I see all the plays, but like having Draymond's Draymond Green's mother like right in front of me and and like she's just so funny. Yeah, uh, it's just, it makes it more entertaining. Um, what is, what is your favorite blank Twitter? So you have like NBA Twitter, gamer Twitter, like all these NBA different. Twitter. NBA Twitter, NBA Twitter you think, is the best one? For me. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Adam Silver said this very well. He was asked, um, we were on stage together, and he was asked, why, why, why Twitter? And one of the things he said is, like, look, our players, unlike a lot of leagues out there, they're just so exposed. They yeah. live so much of their lives in public. They're wearing shorts and tank tops. The the fans are literally right next to where they're playing. Yeah. Um, and they, they've taken to it in such a way where, you know, as soon as the game is over, they're checking it. They're talking about what they did. They're, they're, they're talking about, you know, whatever they're interested in. And, and uh, for, you know, to, to live in public, this concept of living in public, this concept of working in public, that's what they do day in, day out. I think they've handled it amazingly well. If you told the me this has, was yeah. going to, no, then the players too. If you yeah, told yeah. me 15 years ago, this is what the world's going to be like, I would have been like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. And do you These think guys are going to fuck up left and right. But it's not better. I mean, you just you just get to see how they tick and how they think. And it just, it, the replies it makes me feel wait. closer. I think the replies drive some of them a little crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Especially yeah. like when their contract's heading toward free agency and people are hammering them left and right. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if, it's it's basically replaced heckling, because in heckling you're not really allowed to heckle games anymore. If you do, it's just like, you know, Durant, you suck. Yeah. But nothing like really mean. And Twitter has now 
moved into that, I think, especially when I noticed when, uh, this was right around when I stopped reading my replies, um, when I was on TV for two years doing countdown and every series we had, both the fans from both teams were convinced I hated the team. <laughs> and I was like, I have to root for if, if, if we're operated from the premise that I, ha that I care about what happens in this series, then how could I hate both teams at the same time? So I'm just, it's just basketball hate all the way around. But yeah. I do feel like that is a fan base thing of like, it's either people are on my team or I'm against them. Yeah. And that's it. It's us against them. Yeah. But that's in the stadiums too. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's good mostly. But you know, yeah, we we it does get a little crazy. But we we've you know, technology changes the amplification and changes the velocity of that. So yeah. that's that's where we we can we can help. Yeah. Um, Square. It seems like it's been a success. Yeah, we're doing we're doing really well. I'm, what is which been your it. biggest surprise about Square? Um, it, you know, it's just in 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 terms of uh, in terms of attitude. It's just such a well-run, mature um, company, and the reason why we were able to do that so early is which is we felt the immediate burden of moving people's money around. This is yeah. people's livelihood, and if we lose even a cent, like we have really damaged someone's potential. And you know, this is a concept of like you know, every single person in this world has at some point in their life felt bad about money. Yeah. It's not something that anyone normally feels great about. It's not something that we um, we we look we look to as like, wow, that feels amazing. Um, but it's so critical. It's so critical in our society. So we put a lot of emphasis on care and deliberateness and thoughtfulness, and the deliberateness of the company is is just through the roof. And um, at the same time we haven't backed away from taking risk and doing some things that might look a little bit too early, like, uh, like Bitcoin, you know, we, we have this amazing app called the cash app and, you know, it was a huge surprise uh, for us in terms of how quickly people adopted it. And, uh, especially when considering our, our competitors and how entrenched they are, but it became less of an app and more cultural, more cultural. And uh, we we just have such resonance with uh, early uh, early musicians and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of folks um, who are just starting out. We've seen uh, that a lot of people use it as their primary bank account. They don't link another bank account. They don't link a credit card. This is it. So um, to be able to be in a state where people trust us that much with um, their livelihood and with their money and with how they feed their family is um, is amazing, and and we take that responsibility really seriously. When a celebrity, when something horrible goes on their Twitter account or something embarrassing, and then they claim they were hacked, what percentage of the time were they actually hacked? If you had to guess, <laughs> I don't know. Fifty uh, fifty. I don't know. I don't look into. You should these have things. your analytics run on that. Uh, uh, we have we have more important things to do. <laughs> uh, this was great. Thank you. It was. Thank you. Uh, I'm really interested to see what happens over the next year with your company. Yeah, we're, I think it's incredibly important. And I think as you've realized over the last year, especially with the reception <coughs> that you've gotten, um, this is this has to be fixed in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I think it's a really hard challenge. It is. But um, at some point, you're going to actually have to 
announce things and tried out things. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I don't know when that is. It might be nine months from now or whatever. But well, we've been it doing. It feels that. like you we've feel the pressure that. though for it now, right? We've been doing that. We've been doing that. I, I think people expect these these big feature releases that fix everything, and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. I'll just to let you know that's not going to happen. But like we are, you know, we I I do, I would say that you know in the past we use policy and whatnot more as a crutch, and we didn't look deep enough into the product. So we are looking much deeper into the product right now, and you will see releases that address a bunch of these issues, but. A lot of the things that we've been releasing have been addressing some of the health and harassment issues in in sizable ways, including, you know, making the number of reports that we see go down. Yeah. Because a lot of it is is working. But we understand the importance and you know everyone has our commitment and, and my commitment that we're gonna be open about it. We're not always going to look great, but we're gonna admit our mistakes and we're gonna tell people what we're seeing so that, you know, people at least have the opportunity to um, to trust us and, and that we're doing the right thing. Are you you must be thinking about the 2020 election now? Oh yeah. Coming. Well, not just I mean, the this 2020 election. Test case for you guys. Well, we have the Indian elections coming up oh. uh, this year. So uh, you know, the biggest democracy in the world. Uh, the elections are coming up this year, and you know, so we have elections around the world that we want to make sure that we're preserving the integrity of the conversation around those elections. So. Every election that we see is another opportunity for us to learn how to make the next one better and better. I forgot to ask you about, because we do these live post-game Twitter shows, basically, for Game of Thrones, all these different things. And I really <coughs> thought that thought it was just a cool platform for it. And that's why we doubled down and did some more this year. Um, why do you think Twitter is the best place for this? Because like Facebook tried it and all these different places. I'd always had this dream dating back to like... I remember at Grantland, we tried to do a live March Madness show. And for whatever reason, Twitter just fits it. Do you guys see like the entertainment standpoint of Twitter? Like, what do you think the ceiling of that is for you? Because I feel like it's a little bigger than maybe even you guys realize. I don't think there's a ceiling. I, I, I mean, I think people want to talk about what they experience. They, they want to talk this about just what they happened. just saw. Tell yeah. me what happened. They want to talk about it. And, and I can talk about it with only the people I know. Yeah, but that's not as interesting as hearing everything else. Like it does what feel like an advantage for you guys, it. right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the fact that we are not dependent upon your address book is an advantage. The the fact that people come to us as an interest network, the yeah. fact that people are interested in Game of Thrones, and wow, I want to talk about what I just saw on that episode. I'm not going to get it from my friends because they're probably thinking the same way that I do. Yeah, but all these other people who are expressing opinions, they're not. And I'm going to see something insightful. Look at, I mean, look at what happened with, with Bird Box. And that was just a, a phenomenon. The meme thing. Everyone wanted to talk about it. And and then not just talk about it, but apply it to every single thing they saw, especially yeah. like in NBA Twitter. Um, I, I think it's just inherent human behavior. And if you, if we limit it to the address book or the people that we know, that's the ceiling. If you... If you focus on global conversation, there's no ceiling. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Okay. Appreciate the conversation. Let's take a quick break to talk about SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. They have been bit with me since, I don't even remember what year in the BS report back when I was on ESPN. I'd like to think I gave one of the first SeatGeek reads, actually. The more I'm thinking about it. If they did a Mount Rushmore of... People who talked about SeatGeek on a podcast, it would definitely be me and Mark Marin. I don't know who the other two would be, but they have the best. Anything you'd want for sporting events, concerts, and more for 
off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, which may or may not include a game being played by a team from New England and a team from Atlanta. I don't know. I don't know if those two cities are matching up. New England's not even a city. It's a region. Whatever. Use promo code BS. Again, $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. And since we're here, the Ringer Podcast Network, just check it out for God's sakes. I mean, we have the two best player-based NBA podcasts right now. Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore with Andy Finberg. They host Winging It. And then JJ Redick, who not only has players, but he has people like the Goldman Sachs CEO. Yeah, that was uh, that guy was on there too. And the Sixers just got Corey Brewer. I am really hoping JJ has Corey Brewer on a podcast because I've always been fascinated about that guy. So uh, check those out. The JJ Redick podcast, as well as Winging It with... Vince Carter, Kent Bazemore, Andy Finberg. That is all on the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, back to the pod. All right, for the first time in 2019, my buddy Jacko is on the line. The Patriots have yet again prevailed in a dramatic way. 25 years ago, Bob Kraft bought the Patriots and nearly moved them to Hartford, where our buddy Jacko lives. And Jacko bought, I would say, $300 worth of Patriots gear, just preparing for the day when the Patriots and Bob Kraft came. And he became the football messiah for the whole region of Connecticut that would get the <laughs> Patriots. And then it didn't happen in the Patriots state of Massachusetts. Jacko has hated them ever since. They are his version of the Yankees. Uh, congratulations to me, Jacko. Congratulations to <laughs> well, me. I would congratulate you, but you know, I don't congratulate you when the sun comes up or when it sets. And really, the Patriots being in the Super Bowl has has really become just a way of life. So, good point. Sure, congratulations, but you know, it's not unexpected. Do you? You can't even enjoy it at this point. It's just like, oh, ho hum, another Super Bowl. Oh, I disagree. I thir- I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know nephew Kyle's enjoyed it. The whole Simmons family's enjoyed it. I found it really enjoyable. That's great. Don't you by like? The time you guys caught it. By the time you guys caught a sports break. Don't you like being around greatness, this Tom Brady thing, just like having greatness in your life like this? People say greatness doesn't really exist, but yet we get to live with this year after year. You know, I was ferrying my daughter to uh, several basketball games that she had yesterday, and I was listening to uh, the Mad Dog on uh, Sirius XM, as I often do. And and he made the point, really, that this is the, and, and you can't argue it, you can't, uh, that this is the greatest combination of coach, quarterback, and owner in the history of the NFL. I mean, you know, Mad Dog is a big proponent of Lombardi as the greatest ever, which, you know, he's been for half a century. But Belichick has done it in an era of free agency and salary caps and just sustained greatness at a, at a you know, different time with more teams where guys can become free agents, where, you know, you've got to manage the draft. Lombardi did it at a different time where, you know, he didn't lose players and he could get any players he wanted, essentially. So it's just, it's amazing to see. And, and, you know, part of me wishes I was a part of it and on the bandwagon. I'm like, you know, if it's, if it's going to happen, maybe, maybe I should just join the team. And what's the point of like, it's trying to stand in the ocean and keep the tides back. Like, what's the point? You can root against the IRS, but I'm still going to have to pay taxes. Like, what's the you know what's the point of rooting against them? Hold on, I just took my pants off. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> Do like three more minutes of this. This is great. I'm going to make a scotch. Thing, the incredible thing is that it's the New England Patriots, which having grown up in Connecticut, I, I literally until I went to college, and there was you and a couple of other guys that were, that were legit Patriot fans. 
there was I, I knew one guy growing up who was a Patriots fan, and that's because his cousin was Matt Cavanaugh, who was Steve Grogan's backup <laughs> right. for about a hundred years, and he's the only Patriots fan I knew in Connecticut, in New England, and the, and the Patriots were. Um, to call them the ugly stepsister of Boston sports is an understatement. I mean, they were the weakest team in Boston. They had there was like zero fan base. There was probably a diehard fan base of fifty people or something that lived in Foxborough and were hardcore. But if you were to list the favorites of Boston sports teams, you know, Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, in some order, but the Patriots were a distant fourth. Yeah. And now I can't walk down the street without tripping over Patriot flags off of houses and Patriot gear on every every other person. So as a as our hallmate Gene McDonough said, I think you put it in a column once, it's like Bangladesh becoming a superpower like with the United <laughs> States and the Soviet <laughs> Union. It's incredible. Because they were they went from a laughing stock to I mean, you know, it was always the Steelers were the, you know, definition of greatness because they had the four Super Bowls or the 49ers in the 80s or the Cowboys in the 90s. And now, I mean, now the Patriots have done it for multiple decades. It's it's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, I remember I remember people on our hall freshman year teasing me about the Patriots because we had me, we had Nick Aida, we had G. McDonough. Right, I left that Nick Aida. The Blue Boy. fan too, right. Probably had like five, five Pats fans on there. But I think the first year we were in college, they were bad. And there there was that might have been the last Doug Flutie season. And then the second year I was in college, I think was the year they went one and fifteen. It was either sophomore or junior year. That was the year I started gambling. Cause <laughs> I just didn't have a team. I remember being in college and they drafted you you were all fired up for the draft and we were watching the draft and they've drafted Eugene Chung <laughs> and you just suddenly walked into the shower without even like saying a word. <laughs> She just walked into the shower. We were worried you were going to harm yourself. <laughs> I remember the other so thing now was to see them in, this, in their what, their what? Like what is this? Their tenth Super Bowl in the past, you know, fifteen years or whatever it's been. It's just it's incredible. I remember the other thing. People would get mad in college who weren't from New England. That remember they would do the thing. They would just show the local games. Yeah. So. The Patriots would always because it was within whatever they would always they would always show the Patriots as like whatever the AFC game was, and the people who didn't care about the Patriots like what the fuck can we watch games that have good teams? <laughs> it was them? a miserable game played in essentially a high school stadium, you yeah. know, and with with terrible coaches and terrible players, and you know, John Hanna was the most famous Patriot, their left guard or whatever he played, left tackle, whatever he was an offensive lineman and, you know, poor Steve Grogan with his neck brace playing football. It was, a, they were a laughing stock. Yeah, we and were. now they're, a, you know, they're the, God, they're calling like the, the model of the NFL is an understatement. I mean, they're like, you know, they're the New York Yankees of football and like, and like the 19th, the, the Yankees of the 1950s. It's ridiculous. We went nine and seven when we were freshmen. I, I don't remember doing that. Well, that's amazing. Nine and seven was like a win, but then it would, then right. the wheels came off. I remember making a lot of Raymond Berry jokes in my column at the time yeah. about them propping up his corpse during games. All that. that was like the first wave of those jokes. Yeah. They went one in 15 in 1990 when we were juniors. And that was the year I started gambling because uh, I needed, I needed some sort of action. <laughs> and then, you know, and, the, you know, they always had the, they had, what's his name? Victor Kayam was the owner. They had the thing with Lisa Olson. Where yeah, that was horrible. Flashing her in the locker room. And that you had horrible. horrible stories like that. They were known more for like horrible stories and being a laughing stock on the field and controversy and just, just awful stadium. 
in an awful location and and you know Bob Kraft came in and was like a, I mean to call him a savior is also an understatement because that the, the that franchise was moribund there's a good SAT word mm. and now he's built them into the best team in the NFL by far it's not even it's not even debatable yeah i'm try, i'm looking at how long we went to college in Worcester how long Foxborough was? Fifty-five miles or forty-six point four miles. Never thought of going to a never thought. Game, was it, there? Never. <laughs> none of us ever looked at each other and said, "Let's make the ride down to Foxborough." <laughs> no. It'd be really fun to sit on metal benches, and uh, I probably even, brought it up twice and then got laughed out of the uh, out of the hall. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like we could have driven down there, or you could have tailgated, had some beers. Got uh, tickets were probably about three dollars. And that never even occurred to us once. We went to Red Sox games and Bruins and Celtics, but the notion of going to see a Patriots game like never even crossed our mind. Yeah. Well, there's a great there's a great fork in the road. I'd love to know what happens to Connecticut if the Patriots actually just go there. Because you could argue all the same it might things. Be a thriving, breathing state. Actually, well, I mean, we don't. It might not be hooked up to an IV, essentially. <laughs> so that might be. That might have been a good thing. That might be a bonus. Because you <laughs> could argue all the same things could have happened. It's not like the location sure. of the team really mattered that much with Brady no, Belichick the and Kraft. Wouldn't have mattered. It just would have been phenomenal for this region instead of for Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if the Patriots leave New England, go to Connecticut, and then immediately rip off the greatest two-decade run? Right in the history of probably definitely football, definitely, in, and it's on the short list of professional sports. But and all of that happened after they moved to Hartford. Hartford's a different city at that point, of course. And I'd probably be some moron that like leads like the Hartford equivalent of the dog pound with my face painted <laughs> or something, and my own like celebrity tailgate or whatever. Like absolutely. Oh yeah, you would definitely you would have some sort of Hartford <laughs> Patriots podcast on the ringer. Absolutely. We would have had to suspend it for three weeks after something horrible happened at a tailgate with you that you had to apologize for. Right. Imagine <laughs> me during Deflate Gate. My God. Look at me with Sonny Gray. Oh, Imagine man. what I would have been like as a Deflate Gate defender. We really needed you during Deflate Gate. I needed... would have had the ideal gas law like tattooed at some point in my body <laughs> to show to people all the time. We've made four Super Bowls since Deflate Gate, just in case for anyone's yeah, going home. Yeah. Even Goodell can't keep you down, but. You know, you 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 can't even make you can't even argue that anymore. I mean, the team didn't look that great this season. That you know, everybody loved the Chargers and they embarrassed the Chargers. Yeah, everybody loved the Chiefs. And yeah, if the guy doesn't jump off sides, okay. But I mean, there was never a feeling I had that the Chiefs were going to win that game. Really? <laughs> I wish I felt that the, way. The Chiefs got a first down one time and, and, and a third and ten or something, and they celebrated like they just won the Super Bowl. I'm like, this is not a great sign. <laughs> can we act like we've been there before, Chiefs? Even though you have it, can we act like it? You know. So, I mean, they, you know, Mahomes is frightening. He's good, but their defense is an atrocity. And Bill Belichick against Andy Reid. I mean, come on, that's not a matchup. Well, we almost lost. And the thing that mystifies me, I'm, I'm no NFL coordinator, but I'm going to give Sean McVay some advice for the Super Bowl. Maybe have somebody cover Julian Edelman. It's crazy, but it just might be crazy enough to work. They, they showed a replay the other day where Edelman caught a 15-yard slant, and the two defenders, they actually like ran away from him to cover somebody else. Like You're going <laughs> to cover him with a linebacker? There's just like He's open every play of every game. I could throw to him. Sage advice from Jacko. Yes, the Sean McVay little tip for the Super Bowl. Cover Edelman. Put somebody on him. Just a thought.
Well, you can only imagine how crazy it is here in Los Angeles with the Rams finally <laughs> making it. Okay, really hard, harder to get to work. I, I, was it the ringer that retweeted it where they said, I could see where there's two teams in LA because it was like four guys in a bar and yeah. the Rams won and they were like, oh yeah, great. Like there was no like jumping up and down or any other celebration. It was just like, oh yeah, Rams, look about. There is a diehard Rams base from dating back from, you know, when they were here the last time. And then there's an like an under 25 group of people that got into it when they moved back. But LA is so gigantic. It's like a, yeah. it's like a fart in the ocean. Like you, you, you know, you, you're definitely not seeing like a influx of Rams caps as you, as you're driving around LA. Plus everyone's in their cars anyway. It's, t- it's just tough. My mother actually sent me a semi taunting text today asking me who you were going to root for in the Super Bowl, your old hometown or your new hometown. So your mom <laughs> did that. Yeah, I was pretty confident. I said, oh, I think Bill's going to be for the Patriots and not the Rams. Wow, so your mom's like, no. sending daggers at me? I can't believe that. Yeah, I'm unbelievable. Mom's unbelievable. The there See, on that one, yeah. State that, I, I get it on the other hand after, you know, four Red Sox World Series. Absolutely, she's right. You, your family's kind of in sports tatters right now. I see it. That's, I, the kid, I, I, that's what I was thinking of on Sunday is that freaking kid that they show after every Boston championship and he yeah. has a sign in like 2008 that he was like seven years old and he's been to 47 parades or whatever. Yeah. And now he's like 20 and he's been to like a hundred more parades than people like more, more parades than veterans have been in it, This kid's been to like watching Boston championships. And I was thinking of that kid Sunday and I'm like, I, I can't see that kid in his sign at another parade. I just can't, but you know what? I'm going to, yeah, he's going to be there in about three weeks. I hope no, so. Two weeks and a couple of days, he'll be there. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, that. Yeah, the twenty-three to twenty-four-year-old in Boston. It used to be the Will Hunting kid who's like, "You think you're better than me?" And right. now it's the kid who's had eleven titles potentially, and just is can't remember the Patriots not being good, and is just used to everything, and has to have a different level of confidence, at least I would guess. I would think so. What a run. What a run, Johnny. It's, it's incredible. You can't, it's just, you can't wrap your head around it. Do you, you really what can't. It, if, when Brady retires, if that ever happens. Do, he might not. What do you think? Just immediately becomes the president or it is, what, what's the rule <laughs> on that? He has to wait a couple of years. He has to like serve I don't know. I lower mean, offices. Yeah. Well, no, Trump shows you don't have to go to any lower offices and. You know, Brady, he's, he's a, you know, well, he's a big Trump guy. Maybe he'll be Trump's VP. No, we don't time. know that. We don't know. Maybe he he'll doesn't say anything. Pence and go, Pence and go Trump Brady. I don't think, you know, can't stop that. All Brady wants to do is work out and throw football. So I, I, <laughs> there's no way he even knows there's a government shutdown right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Gronk's more on top of that, current affairs and things. Yeah. Uh, before, I wanted to talk about Trump really quick, but... um. <laughs> Can we quickly talk about the Yankees offseason? So you guys, sure. The Red Sox just broke your spirit, and yeah, net what is it? Five year rebuilding plan until the Red Sox dynasty is over. What ha- I don't. What's this game plan you have right now? I, I don't know. They were the Yanks are a small market team now. Of you know, it's adorable. Scra- scrappy, mi- scrappy minor leaguers and the analytics. That's what we're all about now. We don't want to spend money and. um I mean, I wasn't that gung-ho to get Machado because I think while it makes some temporary sense, I think it creates problems when Didi Gregorius comes back and unless you had some plans to ship Andahar off for pitching. The thing that I, I will never understand is why they haven't dipped their toe in the Bryce Harper waters when we're apparently going with a left field of 35-year-old Brett Gardner who hit 230 last year. Clint Frazier, who... 
you know, hopefully he's great, but you don't know what he's going to be. Yeah. And the corpse of Jacoby Ellsbury. I okay. mean, I th- and and the Yankees lineup is all right-handed, which doesn't make any sense. That's to me. your that's your left field situation. Yeah, well, that's our left field. Yeah, Brett Gardner, who they just resigned for ten million dollars, even though I think in the second half he hit about a buck ninety. And the 230 was actually inflated by a, a halfway decent first half, but he collapsed in the second half of the year. He's literally 34 years old. And then we have Clint Frazier, who suffered, unfortunately, from several concussions last year. And you hope he's been cleared to play and cleared for spring training. And, you know, Jesus. he's a highly touted prospect. So he could be great. He also could not be great. Yeah. And then we have Jacoby Ellsbury's corpse that hasn't played in a year. We got two guys. We have Jacoby Ellsbury and Troy Tulowitzki that haven't walked, I don't think, since Barack Obama was president. <laughs> and they're going to be key cogs in the Yankee machine now. Yeah, Tulu. When they have two 26-year-old superstars that can be had only for money, and you're the New York fucking Yankees who have a license to print money, and you don't want to go sign either one of them. Now, I can understand why Jacoby Ellsbury would make you gun-shy from signing free agents, but everyone on earth that had a brain, including me, screamed at the time that that Jacoby Ellsbury signing was horrific because he's made out of porcelain. He was made out of porcelain with the Red Sox, and he wasn't going to get healthier as he got older. And they still went and did that. And now, and now the, and they, and the Yankees think their fans are stupid because now they leaked over the, to friendly media sources over the weekend. Well, the guy we really want is Arenado from Colorado and he's a free agent next year. One, I don't know why we're trying to become the Colorado Rockies of the East. I, I missed the part where they were really like a wonderful team that's won multiple world series, but put that aside, you could have Machado this year who's younger and he doesn't have cores inflated numbers for just money, and now we're going to talk about, oh, we're going to maybe trade for Arenado, so we have to give up prospects and then pay him? Yeah, Give me a break. That's just to shut everybody up who's been complaining that they're not going to go sign free agents. Now, I, I do like that they got Zach Britton back, and they went out and got Adovino. On paper, they have a killer bullpen, which is which is great. They went out and got Paxton, which is good. Except that Machado and Harper are sitting out there, and the Yankees haven't you know shown little interest uh, but that's which is inflaming their fan base, and they're crying like poverty when you know Steinbrenner is like, "Oh, we don't have to spend two hundred million dollars." Your biggest rival just won the World Series last year with like a two hundred and fifty million dollar payroll. They weren't afraid to pay price. They weren't afraid to pay uh, JD Martinez, and the Yankees are like, "Oh no, we don't need free agents. We're going to outsmart everybody." It's it's perplexing, I Johnny. I don't know what to tell you. I, especially, and it's not like the, you know signing Jacoby Ellsbury was rank stupidity. Going after Machado or Harper is not like they're generational talents. They're twenty six years old. Yeah, and it, and there's and it's not like apparently they have a, a you know if they had great offers they'd already be signed. Even though the White Sox have hired every person Manny Machado has ever met in his life, I don't it does I don't think he wants to go play for the White Sox. I don't think either of them want to go play for the Phillies. Now maybe they'll end up there because there's nobody else. But if you're the Yankees, you know that you might be able to get them for less money or more importantly less years. And it's just like, nah, I don't know. We don't want to spend the money. Hal needs another plane or whatever. It's frustrating. Zach Cran did an awesome piece for The Ringer a couple weeks ago about, actually, I guess it was 10 days ago, about uh, why no team should ever be concerned about overpaying Machado or Harper. And the case was basically what you just said about Ellsbury. Like when you signed Ellsbury, all the, first of all, it's a bad sign when the team's fans that are losing the guy are all like laughing and pointing. Which is basically what's going on. It's like real wow, you're paying a lot of money for Ellsbury. Good luck keeping right. that guy on the field. Was basically the attitude. Um, 
So that's a I bad remember sign. When he was a free agent for the Red Sox. He was a Red Sox, and he became a free agent. And I was joking with a Red Sox fr- friend of mine, and I'm like, "Oh, you guys aren't going to have to worry about it. Some idiot team will overpay." And I was thinking it was going to be the Mariners because yeah. in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm like, "Oh my God, some team's going to get suckered into him." And it turned out to be my team. Yeah, and everybody knew that was a disaster. But that was the prototypical free agent that fails, where you're getting you're paying somebody on past performance. He's hitting right. his thirties. These Machado Harper, it's so unique with them that how young they are. I, I personally like Harper more than Machado, just because. Uh, Me too. I, I'm not sure about Machado, the guy. <laughs> to be, yeah, to I mean, be kind, I, I don't like the Johnny Hustle thing from the World Series. That he didn't is really weird. Show up in he the just World seems Series. like he might be a dick, you know. And, yeah, and he does. To give and the Yankees already have a hustling situation with Gary Sanchez, so you don't need more of that. It's going to be that's going to be picked at like a scab, and by the New York media, it's going to make things even worse. He fa- he checks his, prickly about it. Yeah, he checks a lot of boxes for. I'd be concerned if this guy has ten years of three hundred million dollars guaranteed. What might happen? Of just all right, are you going to keep working as hard as you did? Are you going to become more of a dick? All that stuff. Right. I also felt like the Red Sox. Really could pitch to them, pitch to him in the World Series in a way that uh, by the end of the World Series, I just wasn't scared when he was up. Harper feels like there's another level he can go to, and I know, I know he was probably better three years ago than he is now, but I don't, I don't know. I just like that guy. I think in Yankee Stadium, it's such a place where it's such a match of personality and fans and right. the whole thing. It feels like that would be better for Harper. But, he seems like kind of like a media guy, a guy that would be drawn to that and yeah. like want to be on the big stage and and you know an outf- an outfield of you know you put Hicks in center, you put him in left and Judge in right, and you have you have Stanton there. I mean that that two, three, four, five of a lineup, you know, where in some order you have you have Judge, uh, Stanton, Harper, Sanchez, I mean, that's and you need lethal middle of the order, and you need him. Right. They don't have it. I mean, it's not like we have, oh my God, well, that's okay. We don't need a left fielder because we have Brett Gardner. I mean, give me a break. Or they're going to, the thing, oh, we're going to play Stanton in the outfield a lot more and have Judge play left and have, have, have Stanton in right. That's great. That's a chance for both of them to get injured. I don't understand that at all. I'm wondering, so I, now here's the flip side. I'm wondering, because I've always wanted to see baseball teams do this, where they just don't love the free agent choices, but they know come June, July, there's going to be some expensive dude that becomes available and that's when they go all in on. Maybe. So maybe that, maybe that is what they're thinking, but I don't know. I Harper just seems perfect for them. I'd like, as a Red Sox fan, I would be scared if that, if they got him be like, Oh shit. The the other, the other thing they're leaking is, well, you know, these we're going to have to pay judge and we're going to have to pay um, Sanchez and Severino down the line. But one, you're years away from that too. Jacoby Ellsbury's rotting $20 million that you should set on fire is going to be coming off the books. They're paying Gardner $10 million and they're paying CeCe, I think, 8 or $9 million. That's like $50 million. They're yeah. paying $1.2 million to Greg Bird. That's $51 million of dead weight money that, that you're not going to be paying in a couple of years. So the notion that, one, the Yankees are crying poverty, and two, even if that's a consideration, you're going to have so much money coming off the books. And the other thing they're leaking because they think their fans are gullible are like, well, in two years, Trout and Betts are going to be free agents. But I don't think either of those guys are going to get to free agency because the Angels are crazy if they Betts don't give won't. Trout a blank check. Yeah, Betts. And the Red Sox are never going to let Betts become a free no. agent. So no. the notion that you're going to sign one of those guys, it's not going to happen because they're not going to be free agents. I think it's crazy stupid. that for whatever these stupid baseball rules are that are, they're probably colluding, 
But like Betts goes to arbitration and he makes $20 million for one year. Right. He, he's like worth, I don't know how much, but it's definitely more than $20 million. It's definitely. just weird that you can't take care of young players with bigger deals like that. And then the the thing I would change over everything that drives me nuts is the service time thing. Like we had, yeah. we had a uh, Jimenez, the White Sox super stud prospect on our, on our uh, league of dorks team. And they didn't bring him up, even though he was just tearing up the minors and they had nothing to play for. It's like classic, bring this guy up, get him some reps, but they didn't bring him up because of the whole fucking service time thing. And now they probably won't bring him up till May. So then they'll get to keep him for the extra year after that. It's like, this is, right. this is dumb. Um, just, so the, that's what the Yankees did with, you know, tried to do with Glaber Torres and what the Red Sox did with Bogarts too. The same thing, right? I, everybody does it. It's not, it's yeah. not unique to the, to the, uh, all the, the White Sox, but it's just weird that that's the rule. Like in basketball, you know, you play one game, you're a rookie. That's year right. one. You play two games second year. That was, that was year <laughs> right. two. Um, I don't know why baseball doesn't do that. The service time thing is out of like the 1920s. It's very well, this, strange. This, this off season is, you can definitely see they're heading towards, uh, if not a work stoppage, then certainly some, some labor strife. Let's put it that way. Because even on Twitter, like baseball players themselves are reacting and saying like, what the hell is going on here when Machado, you know, it's January 22nd, Machado and Harper haven't signed yet. Well, can you imagine if this was the NBA and, your two signature, you know, like this year it would be, I guess, Kevin Durant and who's the other signature for Adrian? Let's say Clay Thompson. Yeah. And, and it was just they like. They're still sitting out there. Yeah, it was like August 29th <laughs> and there was like no movement on the KD sweepstakes. Yeah. Uh, it just makes no sense. They're Whether they're colluding or whether they just finally realized uh, that, that there's no reason to rush. But I the part I don't get why are the tickets still so expensive? Why do all these teams have to have $250 million payrolls when we're clearly heading toward this world where the TV rights are just where most of the money's going to come from? Um, the attendance, they're still, you know, they still have the 81 games a year. It's still going to be a cash cow to some degree, but I just feel like attendance is going to matter less and less every year. How many games did you go to last year? Well, I didn't go to any of the games last year. Yeah. But that was inconceivable 20 years ago. You were younger 20 years ago, but... True. I didn't have kids and whatever, but yeah. Everyone's got nicer TVs now. You can just hang out and watch the Red Sox at home or the Yankees or whoever. Yeah. Nobody and wants to go cost, to 81 games. Beer doesn't cost me 15 bucks a clip in my house. So. Yeah, and the parking and everything. Like, it's just right. not worth it 40 anymore. Bucks, 50 bucks to park, right? It's, it's ridiculous. So they have to think about how how they make the tickets more accessible first. That's why everybody's just on the secondary market now, just cherry picking whatever the best seats were. Um, but it, I, I just don't, I can't wrap my head around that part. The economics of it that were so built on, oh, we'll, we'll jack up, like the Yankees, we'll jack up our tickets and that'll help. Like I, you watch the Yankee game in May and it's just empty seats Nobody. behind home plate. But they don't care because it's all season ticket sales, all behind home plate and everything. They don't care that it looks ridiculous. Yeah, but at some point, <laughs> seemingly who's... nobody at the game, and it's you know a, a sterile corporate environment where nobody's really into it. So, but at some point, why have season tickets for the Yankees when you can just buy them online? Yeah, Makes no sense. No, it's true. Just jump it's a in. Different world, man. Different world. Different times, and now the Yankees are the uh, Kansas City Royals. So, congrats. <laughs> Thanks, um, I got that going for me, Donald Trump. Just yeah. quickly, uh, government shutdown, that's gone well. 
um, <laughs> prove this point there. <laughs> we, uh, he's become increasingly erratic and yeah. I, I want to flip this the other way. Did you see his, he, did he have, was it real or it, you never know what's real or fake these days, but I think it was a real thing where he was, he had a tweet touting Kurt Schilling's, uh, hall of fame candidacy. Was that a real thing that happened over the weekend or did I, I, I hope, that? I hope that's not true. I think he had a Twitter thing about how he always came up big in big games and he should be in the hall of fame. <laughs> not wrong. <laughs> he really is like a sports radio call-in guy. <laughs> The president of the United States, like, let's, get, let's worry about Kurt Schilling's Hall of Fame candidacy. That that might have been a better career path for him. Maybe. They should, you know, talk about ways things, things could have been differently. If the NFL would have just let him buy the Buffalo Bills a few years ago, how different would everything be? I wish. You know, what happened. a different world it would be. He never would have been involved in politics. He'd have been like, you know, he'd be driving Goodell insane instead of, you know, the <laughs> other world leaders or whatever. So what a difference. What a, what a difference in history that would be. Well, we passed the two-year mark with him. Yeah. What, what have been some of the highlights for you? <laughs> um, it's so hard to choose because, you know, every day is is just more over-the-top stuff and, you know the tweets and the things he says and the, the the misspellings and just the inanity of everything. You know, like bringing in Clemson and buying a thousand quarter pounders for them and everything, and serving like the pictures of the pictures of Trump in some White House state dining room with like the fine china with covered in like French fries and Burger King and McDonald's. I guess it was McDonald's or whatever. And you know, it's just so incongruous. It's so damn funny. Like you look at this. The funniest thing I saw on Twitter was. Trump in the in the White House underneath a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and he's got this table laid out with all kinds of fast food, and then it says the Twitter caption. It said, "What's your third wish?" <laughs> <laughs> like the cheaty. I want to be president. I want all the McDonald's I can eat. You know, it's so damn funny. Yeah, I don't know how this plays out because I don't think the government shutdown's really, working. It's you know, people always say it on social media. It's like being in a movie or a TV show, and you're just like, what are the scriptwriters going to come up with next? Because it's like. It, can't, it seems like it's fiction, but it's real. Yeah, it seemed that way for the last year and a half. I don't really know what to say about it anymore. I get the whole everybody's got to be on both sides of something, but you just kind of look around and it's like, what's better? Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> what, I mean, What's I don't better know. than it was two years ago? I don't know. Like Honestly, I, I, I'm not even trying to be a dick. Like Just Tell me what. Tell me what's unemployment is allegedly low, so you know. I guess the unemployment rate is is solid, and allegedly it's a good economy. But you know, his tariffs and things are are taking a bigger toll. Than Everybody's they. really worried about that stuff now. Yeah, the tariffs are stupid, and the you know the government shutdown is not helping things. And you know, eight hundred thousand you know government workers aren't getting paid, so that affects you know if they go on the unemployment line or whatever. That's not going to be great for. It's not great for the economy because it's 800,000 people that aren't putting money back into the economy and spending money. So, um, hold on. Not to mention a big reason for the shutdown was the whole we've got to, we got to build this wall. We got to protect America. We're yeah. in danger. And then the solution yeah, then the for TSA that is, is yeah, the solution that is to cut off TSA, which is like, I'm pretty sure those right. guys protect us from stuff. So and I don't his, know. Uh, you know, he, he had the gall to come out a couple of weeks ago and say, well, I never said Mexico was going to pay for the wall directly. Like, well, there's like a million and one quotes of him saying exactly oh, that. This is, you know, the whole thing, like, this is shut down because the government isn't going to pay for this wall. Well, the whole his whole campaign was, oh, it's really easy to get Mexico to pay for this. And like, I'm going to snap my fingers and bing, bang, boom, there'll be a wall that Mexico's footing the bill for. So 
I can't the whole wait. Things are just ridiculous. I can't wait till he weighs in on the Oscars race and is a huge fan of Green Book. That's <laughs> no, the next Green Book. It was great. That movie's catnip, <laughs> catnip for 72 year olds. All right, uh, there you go. Yeah, he's going to wait in on that. Really, nothing is going to happen from an outrage standpoint until he does something with pets. That ang- with until what? he until he angers the pet owners, there's yeah. really not going to be anything yet. Like you can lay out, you can uh, put all the federal employees on hiatus, all that stuff. But when he does some new thing, like uh, I'm laying off all the veterinarians, or, yeah. or uh, we're having a new dog tax for rescue dogs. It's going to be. $5,000 if you rescue a dog that goes to the building the wall. That's when shit's going to go down. When the, You can't That's fuck with right. the dog owners. No, you can't. He's not a big dog. He does not like pets. He is a germaphobe. He doesn't like dogs. So he doesn't drink. He doesn't like dogs. That should tell you everything you need to know about him. He doesn't drink and he doesn't like dogs. Well, he doesn't need to drink. He's a naturally high guy. He's well, got a natural so, buzz. But, you know, it's, yeah, that's, yeah, I suppose. God, mm. imagine if he did drink, because he said himself, like, God, what would he be like? Well, year three. It's been a rocky start to year three. Still holding out yes, hope. It maybe it'll get better. Maybe. Maybe the script writers have something better in store for the rest of the year. Mm. Johnny. Yeah. What, any high, Anything good happening for you these days? The Pats? <laughs> the, the politics? The Red Sox? What are the um, silver linings? Well, my daughter's basketball team is uh, undefeated. Oh, there you go. There you go. So we got that going That's for us. That's huge. So we're going to ride right through to the Grammar School State Championship. You haven't so gotten kicked I'm out of a game, that. have you? I have not. No, I was. there was an outrage in a game this this weekend. They were in a tournament, and we were playing the, the home team, and I, some of their parents were a little too animated. And then a kid on our team was caught. Was, the other team was shooting a free throw, and a kid on our team was on the line, and she coughed. And the ref said that was a violation. And then our coach was like, she has a cold. And her mother's like, she has asthma. And he's like, no, the timing was suspicious. So the girl started like crying, bawling. And then the ref like followed her into the huddle and was like yelling at her. And, you know, I, I said a few things to the ref. I that was just outrageous. <laughs> you and were- I never say anything to the refs. I never do. But it was a tense atmosphere in this game. It was a tense crowd. I didn't love some of the behavior from the parents of the other team. And then when this poor kid is like coughing and the ref claims that was like gamesmanship to like throw the shooter off. I was, I was a little angry. You were always not just a first round draft pick of my friends to get into some sort of an altercation with the, <laughs> with the youth sports ref. You were a lottery pick for me, Johnny and a high one at no, that. I'm, I'm always well behaved. And you know, I'm like the coach. A lot of times I do like the book and keep score Sometimes in home games, I like do the clock, so I feel like I'm part of the action. It's exciting stuff. Kyle, you like this story. We're in college. We're throwing, we threw a party when we <laughs> lived off campus, and we had a keg, and we had to limit the number of people that were there. And these kids wanted to come in, and we were just like, that's it, we're out. We're not selling cups anymore. These kids left. And they were a little drunk, and one of them threw something through our window. What they threw through our window, Johnny? Like a rock or a brick or something. So me and one of my other roommate, we run out to yeah. go get these kids. Sure. We're chasing these kids down, and they're drunk, so it wasn't hard to catch them. We jump on them. What are you going to do? Like, it wasn't a fight because we were way more sober than they were. Sure. Sometimes it feels. It settles down. They're like, sorry, man. All right, we'll pay for it. We know who the kids are. 
10 seconds later, Jacko comes chugging in, swinging. Oh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) It was like like out of a movie. I don't know where you were. You might have been in the bathroom, and he comes chugging in, swinging. Couple connections, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's Jacko. What do you guys charge for cups, if you don't mind me asking? What do we charge for cups back then, Johnny? Ah, geez, it was a simpler time. I don't. Was it five, I, even five bucks, or was it less? Than I that? feel like it was. I feel like, like it's two. like five now. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think it was like. Yeah, it two. might have been like two bucks. Okay. Remember the one time we splurged for Moosehead? Yeah, that was great. Because usually we get like the Milwaukee's best. Uh, <laughs> Whatever is forty five dollars and under. Exactly. We're always jumping on that one. Uh, all right, Johnny. Thanks as always for uh, for coming on the BS Enjoy. podcast. Congratulations on yet another championship. You By the way, it. if you if you want to jump on the bandwagon, tell me I'll mail you some Pat's gear <laughs> for your children. Awesome. You say the word. <laughs> all right, I'll let you know. All right. I'll let you know. <laughs> See, you, buddy. Bye. All right. Thanks to uh, Jack Dorsey. Thanks to Jackos. Double Jack. Double Jack today. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to HelloFresh. Fresh, pre-measured ingredients. Easy to follow recipe cards delivered straight to your door. They do all the planning, shopping, and prepping. You can focus on enjoying the new year and a healthier you. Take advantage of their special offer for 2019. $80 off your first month by going to HelloFresh.com slash BS80. Enter promo code BS80, BS80. Check it out. Don't forget about the rewatchables with The Fast and The Furious. And we'll be back later in the week with another pod. Till then. <laughs>